Today we're going to be looking at Psalm 13. As you read the scriptures, um, you will do yourself a huge favor to read it as to the best of your ability with the emotion that is meant to be placed in these passages, especially the Psalms. Psalm 13, starting in verse 1. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Consider and answer me, O Lord, my God. Light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. Lest my enemies say I have prevailed over him. Lest my foes rejoice because I am shaken. But I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. Let's pray. Father, we acknowledge and recognize the gift and the grief of fathers. We thank you that you are a father to the fatherless. God, that you provide the perfect model. And God, even for those of us who are in this room that are fathers, as we look at your perfect example, we confess to you our failures, and yet we rejoice in all the benefits we have reaped through earthly fathers. God, we pray for Orlando. We pray that you would be the comforting, consoling presence there. God, we pray that you would stop violence and you would stop hatred and stop oppression. God, that you would somehow bring sense and beauty out of ashes. God, be with us today as we look at this passage, that you would teach us uh, to be who you've called us to be, that you would teach us to pray and to relate to you as you want us to pray and to relate to you. In Christ's name we pray, amen. It's often in church that you will hear a phrase, God is good, the congregation responds, all the time, and then somebody says, all the time, God is good. It could equally and as truly be said, life is hard all the time, and all the time, life is hard. One of the powerful parts about the declaration of the church saying God is good all the time is that we know life is hard all the time. For every person that sits in this room, not equal in experiences, but truth that life is always hard. The Psalms help us live in the hardness and sorrow of life. The Psalms, in fact, instruct us how to live and who to be in the midst of the hardness and the sorrow of life. John Calvin, one of the most famous reformers, says this about the Psalms. The Psalms are a virtual textbook of the human soul. Now, honest, if we're just honest with ourselves, there's a lot of moments that you're like, I don't even know if I know myself. I'm not even certain I understand what I'm thinking, right? If you have a friend that's really close to you or a family member, a spouse, and they go, what are you thinking? What are you feeling? The number of times your honest answer is like, I don't even know. Right? I feel weighed down. I feel, I don't even know. John Calvin says the Psalms will help us figure this out. The Psalms are a virtual textbook of the human soul. He goes on to say the central text in biblical psychology. So psychology just sounds like a big word. It just means to make sense 
of who we are as human beings, the central text to help us in the Bible is the psalm, which is a virtual textbook of the human soul. Peter Lightheart, who is an author that's quite heady, but I like quite a bit, says this. This quote will be on the screen. The psalms are also a textbook of prayer. Now, you need to understand this just in short. Prayer, fundamentally, is our communion in relationship with God. Our relationship with God, our communicating. The Psalms are also a textbook of prayer. Frequently employing language that is unnerving in its vehemence. Now, the word vehemence means passion, strength, directness, emotion, right? The Psalms frequently employ language that's unnerving. It makes us uncomfortable because of how vehement it is. Psalms indicate that an over, overwhelming desire for justice should animate our prayers, that we should express our disappointments with honesty. So here's what the Psalms say, is that you should be so passionate in following Jesus for justice that when wrongdoing and unrighteousness happen, that you express... In prayer to God, your disappointments with the world, with yourself, with your family, with your friends, with whatever's happening, your job, that you express them with honesty. I've highlighted in this quote key words that we're going to get to with honesty. That prayer is not quiet time, but prayer is a time of wrestling and passion. Praying the Psalms makes the biblical story and biblical language part of us. It makes the biblical story and the language of the Bible a part of us. And I love this phrase. It knits it into the fabric of our flesh. Now, here Lightheart's not saying flesh as though the sinful flesh, but the realness of who we are as humans. I have to say this. I cannot teach this psalm without thinking of how I was reared and raised here in this church uh, under Tom Schrader's ministry. Today, he had a line so oftentimes when he would teach, he would have this line that many of you, if you've been here for a long time, know that where he'd say, what you know trumps what you feel. Okay, that's this psalm. And the other thing is what he embodied. He embodied a faith and this church, the leaders in this church, including Tim Mon, Neil Pitchell, all these people that poured into me, embodied a faith that was a real life faith. Redemption Church, we talk about having an all of life faith. All of life's all for Jesus. But part of the problem of what much of the Christianity that you and I have experienced, even if you're in this room is an unbeliever, is it's not a real life faith. It's like an out there heavenly, conceptual, but not embodied faith. Peter Lightheart says that the Psalms knit the biblical truth, the biblical story and the language in the, the Bible into our very flesh and makes us more true to who we are as human beings and helps us live in the real world. That's what he's saying. Now we're going to see from Psalm chapter 13 and all the Psalms that prayer is essential to you being a full human being. Jesus said he came to give us life and give it to the full, to experience the fullness of life in a hard, sorrowful, and sinful world. We've got to pray. So today we're going to see from the psalmist that we have to pray in three ways. We have to pray in protest. We have to pray and plea, and we have to pray through preaching. 
Okay, we're going to pray and protest, pray and plea, and pray through preaching. Psalm 13, before we get into it, you have to understand fundamentally is a prayer for help. It's a plea for help. The Psalms, over and over again, in 13 is one of these Psalms, will push us into our true and authentic neediness. Now, when you get into this and you begin to see the passion and vehemence that we talked about in Psalm 13, in all the Psalms for that matter, you've got to understand the Psalms are there to drive biblical truth, the biblical story and language into us, to press us into our true and authentic neediness. Now, I can't say that word without acknowledging this. That is not a word that's celebrated in our culture. We say they're so needy. They're so, and, and part of neediness can be bad, but here's the problem in our culture is it promotes to us autonomy. It promotes to us, you should be self-sufficient. Where the Bible is screaming over and over and over again, human beings are not self-sufficient. They fundamentally are needy. The problem is we don't recognize or live into our neediness. Therefore, we abandon the full life that Jesus came to give us. The Psalms press us into our neediness. So we must pray in protest, plea, and preaching. Let's get after it. Praying in protest, verses 1 and 2. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Right at the beginning of this psalm, you see the psalmist protesting God. Now, let's be honest. I want to say that again, and I want you to be aware of how you feel. Protesting, complaining to God. True prayer has substantial, not minor, not some. True prayer has substantial components of lament. It's weeping, bringing your weeping to God. Laments, complaints, and protests. Protests happen fundamentally because of this question, how long? So if you go to the Capitol, there's protests of Governor Doug Ducey for policies that are going to be on his desk that he may sign during that season. You'll see protests happen. And people will be saying, how long is this or that going to continue to happen? Then they'll say things like, it's too long. Not any longer will this happen. They're protesting. Right now, I am protesting the University of Arizona being in the College World Series. It, don't clap. Don't clap, okay? We will exit you out of this place if you clap. It makes me sick, honestly. Like, they are not as good as ASU is in baseball, and yet they're in the College World Series. That, I'm honestly praying, weeping in my bed at night, like Psalm 6 says, how long, O oh Lord? God says, God is teaching us, not just in Psalm 13, all over the Psalms. If you are going to be true to your humanity of living in a hard, sorrowful, sinful world, you must honestly and authentically express your emotions, pains and sorrows, complaints and protests to God. There's a massive difference 
between complaining to your friends about your friends and complaining to God. He's telling us in the Psalms, bring your protests to me. If you look at verses 1 and 2, there's a fourfold repetition. Now in the Bible, in any writing for that matter, when things are repeated, a point's trying to be made. In Hebrew poetry, which the Psalms is, repetition really means pay attention. So there's a fourfold repetition of the phrase, how long? It starts with, how long, O Lord? And then it progressively gets worse. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? Truth be told, I'm giving you the freedom to say it's fundamentally a spiritual thing to do. Acknowledge that there is many points in your life and in my life where we feel that God's forgotten us. When have you felt like that? Do you feel like it now? Do you feel guilty when you feel like that? Well, the Psalms would say, don't. Don't feel guilty. Bring it to God. Have you forgotten me? Express it to God. He then gets even more direct. He goes, how long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? And then he says, how long will you hide your face from me? It's even more significant. It's not just that God's forgotten you, but it's this, it feels like, God, you've actively turned away from me. Now, this statement of you are hiding your face from me. When I hide from my children, I'm not kind of hiding. It's not by chance that I'm hiding. I'm actively hiding from them. The psalmist is going, God, how long are you going to hide from me? You haven't just forgotten me. It absolutely my experience is that you're hiding from me. Now, for the psalmist who's a Jew, the Jews pray a prayer multiple times a day where they say, Lord, would you bless us and keep us and make your face to shine upon us. That God's face shining upon you is blessing. What's he saying? Will you hide your face from me? The opposite of blessing, I'm in the midst of a curse because you have actively turned your face against me. How long will you do that, God? You forget me? Will you turn your face from me? Now, what does that look like in the psalmist's life? He goes on and says, how long? Gets even more earthed, more human. We feel it more. How long must I take counsel in my soul? How long will there be this ongoing rattle of conversation inside my very being. Do you know about that? The moments you sit on your bed and conversations are going forth in the midst of your very body, not just in your head, but it's all over you and you can feel it palatably, physically, in your fingers and in your toes. And there are these conversations and arguments happening within you. Some of them to God. Some of them are about yourself. Why am I like this? Why, am I, why are they like this? Why is he like this? God, why is this like this? And it, you can't get to sleep. And then you wake up and you're like, let me just go about my day. And it continues to happen. And at your lunch break and in your car. And all the time, there are these conversations going on within you. And you're wondering, like, am I schizophrenic? <laughs> well, right now, if you ask that question, you've got to go, is the psalmist schizophrenic? Some people truly are clinically diagnosed as such. They have voices in their heads. But all of us, to varying degrees have that going on, and most of the time, it isn't fun. 
What you know clear from the psalmist is that he is in desperate and urgent need. And he's bringing his desperation and his urgency to God. He then goes on. How long must I take counsel of my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? Feel this. This counsel in my soul, these conversations, and sorrow in my heart. Where do I go from my soul or my heart? I just want to get away from it. But where I go, it goes. Because it's my soul and it's my heart. It's with me all the time. When I rise and when I sleep and when I work, it's there. And sorrow is deep in my heart. If you went to a psychiatrist or a psychologist right now and you said, I have sorrow in my heart, not sometimes, but all day long, they would call that what? Depression. They may even say you are clinically depressed. Now, if you're in this room and you go, I'm awful, right? I'm, I'm a depressed mess, the Psalms would say, you're in good company, so are the psalmists. Sorrow in their hearts all day long, that darkness won't lift. The moments when you feel like you're drowning and cannot get a breath type of sorrow. The same sorrow the psalmist feels here. How long, God? How long will I not even be able to breathe? How long will this weight be on my chest? How long will this sorrow be over me and these conversations fill me? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Enemy. What in the world is the enemies in the Psalms? It's spoken of over and over all throughout the Psalms. Enemy, opponents, adversaries. There's all kinds of different thoughts about this. Many people think in this Psalm that the enemy was death. Now, that would be consistent with biblical teaching, that there is a great enemy, the enemy of death. But nowhere here or in any other of the Psalms does it ever specifically answer who these enemies are. Maybe only a couple times, a few times throughout the Psalms, do we directly know who the enemies are. They could be literal people or they certainly are situations. And I'm convinced that God leaves it open like that because all of us who sit in this room have diverse experiences of what brings about the sorrow, the hardness, the protests in our heart. For some of us, it's family illness. For some of us, it's family loss and death. For some of us, it's the things in life that you just cannot get through and you can't do anything about what you can't get through. For some of us, the enemy is us. You're the one always standing in the way of what it is. For some of us, it's aging. For some of us, it's that we're too young. For some of us, it's our family. That the relationships in your family are so broken and so screwed up and you inherit the consequences of that, whether you like it or whether you don't. For some of us, it's addictions. For some of us, it's a decision we made for good, to do good, to be righteous, that in the end is reaping for us what feels right now like consequences we don't know if we would have chosen to do the righteous thing if we know it would have resulted in this. Those are all in the Psalms enemies in which we are called to protest, God, how long will my enemy exalt over me? Which is profound because in the Bible, what's spoken of as exalted all the time is who? God. 
But here the psalmist is saying, you are an exalted God. Your face is far from me. Who's exalted over me is my enemies, which could be your physical pain that you can't get away from. Your sleeplessness that you can't get through. There's a Jewish writer who says this, I only pray when I'm in trouble, but I'm in trouble all the time. (laughs) I love that. And the problem for us, listen to this, the problem is not if you're in trouble, it's that you don't recognize you're in trouble. If we don't recognize we're in trouble and see that and experience it, it will have serious consequences. It'll have consequences upon you personally. It'll have consequences on your friends and your family and the community that's around you. And ultimately has consequences on your view of God that you're meant to live out of. You won't cry for help to the helper. You won't cry for salvation in the here and now to the one who is the Savior. You must feel it, experience it, and protest it to God. Trouble is, church, the human experience. Suffering is the human experience. The problem with our culture is our culture presses us to worship comfort, to worship convenience, to worship security, to worship safety in such a way that we absolutely deny suffering when the bible tells us that the truth of the world is that trouble is there all the time and suffering and sorrow are meant to be expected and embraced not liked not liked but expected and embraced And the only way you can expect and embrace suffering is if at the same time you protest it to God. This is awful. Get it off me. Take it away. Which is what then moves us into praying in protest, but now praying in plea. Look at what he says in 3 and 4. Consider and answer me, O Lord my God. This is incredible because this is now the psalmist making an imperative, a command upon God. Consider and answer me, O Lord my God. You light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. Lest my enemies say I have prevailed over him and my foes rejoice because I am shaken. Please demands upon God. Can we do that? Is that right to do? To protest him and now to to put demands upon God? I have two little girls, a five-year-old girl and a four-year-old girl. And I always say to people, people always told me girls are different than boys. But if you don't know this, girls really are different than boys. Um, But there's these moments that are both um, metaphor, kind of play moments, and real moments in which they ask for their dad's help. So right now, um, my five-year-old girl, Lucy, is really into gymnastics, and now all the kids love watching American Ninja Warrior, right? So yesterday, they're like, we want to watch American Ninja Warrior. I'm like, it's not on. Figure it out. This is the difference between this generation and my generation. If it wasn't on, it wasn't on, right? Now they're like, turn it online. You can find it somewhere. And 
the sad part is they're right. So we look and we, we find it. They watch the Atlanta episode of American Ninja Warrior. And then when they're done, they set up a mattress on the ground and couches and they're running. And then they'll go up on the, you know, try to jump on the couches. Well, some of the girls will fall in between the couch and the wall. And their bottoms sink in and they look like a dead cow, right? Their feet are up. And at those moments, literally, they're going, Dad, help! But then what's amazing about little girls is they'll create moments. Like they barely fall off the couch and their hands are there and they'll be like, Dad, rescue me. And I'm like, what? Just get up. No, you're my prince. I'm the prince and save me. And there's these moments where you know girls are expressing something true of humanity. Human beings recognize we live in a world in which oftentimes we need help. And there's a desire within us to be saved, to be rescued. But our moment-by-moment lives have real moments, minute-by-minute, in which we must be saved. Now, is it okay for the psalmist to protest God and make demands upon him? Well, it must be, because it's all over the psalms, and we're told to pray like the psalms. Jesus prayed the psalms. But really specifically, think about it like this. If you're protesting somebody, you're protesting them because you believe they can change it. If you're making demands upon somebody, you're making demands upon somebody that you believe can do it. The very nature of protest, the very nature of plea is saying, you are the one who can help. My girls don't scream out to me because they think I can't help, because they believe I'm helpless. They cry out to me because they believe I'm helpful and can save them. We protest God because he's the one who can change it. We protest God because fundamentally we know this isn't the way you ultimately want it to be. Ultimately. We plea and make demands of God to consider and save us because he's considerate and because he's a savior. We have to pray like human beings because if we don't, the consequences are huge. Old Testament scholar Walter Brueggemann says... If we forego lament, now let me stop for a minute and tell you what lament is. This is a prayer of complaint or lament. It's grieving, complaining, and protesting. He says this is all over the Bible. And yet, truth be told, in a culture that tries to push us away from suffering, will push us away from lament, will create churches where there's plastic smiles and everything is praise. Not everything is happy, clappy praise. Most of life is sorrowful, mourning kind of praise, protesting and pleading kind of praise. Those are very different. Brueggemann says when we remove ourselves from lament, protest, plea, there are huge costs to it. He says the first cost is to us. Because we begin to ignore the emotions and the feelings that God made us to have. The grief that comes from living in a world that's fallen in sin and not the way God called us to live. We begin to deny our fears. We begin to deny our concerns. We begin to think suffering and loss are abnormal. Suffering and loss aren't abnormal in a hard, sorrowful, sinful world. They're normal. And if we think they're abnormal, we'll deny them. We'll 
avoid them. We'll begin to live in a fantasy land. And in the end, when you live in a fantasy land, you become fake and a fantasy yourself, which affects you catastrophically. One of the major reasons it affects you catastrophically is because it affects you relationally. Fake people cannot engage in real relationships. Fake people can't engage in real relationship. Folks, hear this. The Bible and even modern day science says the fundamental healing from your enemies, whatever they may be, your own addictions or your own situations, the greatest mechanism to healing is community, is healthy, honest community, relationships. If you're fake, by denying and avoiding suffering as abnormal, you will not experience community and relationship, solidarity, meaning commitment and connection with people the way God tells us to. It affects you, it affects community, and then ultimately it affects your relationship with God. Because if you deny suffering, you deny your need for help, if you deny your need for help, you deny your need for God, and that's a problem because you and I were made for God. If you deny suffering in the world, you deny that the world needs salvation. If you deny that the world needs salvation, you don't believe that there's no other name under heaven by which, which we must be saved all the time, moment by moment, day by day, by Jesus. Brueggemann is absolutely correct that it affects us, it affects our relationship, it affects the entirety of our community, and it affects our relationship with God. There's a psychologist named Mary Piffer, and she says, our culture doesn't handle suffering very well. In fact, she contends, quote, that almost all of the craziness in the world comes from our running from pain. Our culture doesn't handle suffering very well. In fact, she says, most of the craziness in our world comes from the fact that we're running from pain. Now, I want to be honest. There's a very human aspect to running from pain. Because pain comes into the world through sin. But the amazing paradox, the, the thing that's confusing about God is he says that we actually find ourselves in turning into our need, in turning into pain at the moment because here's what makes us crazy if we try to run from it we said it before you can't it's everywhere right so pretty soon you're like this is nuts like i can't get away from it but when you turn into your neediness and turn into pain what it does is elevate your eyes to go i can't find help here i can't find help here i can't find help here and mostly i can't find help here Help! And you look outside yourself, and God is there to help. God is there to help. And this is why the psalmist ends with praying through preaching. But he protests, he pleads, now he preaches to whom? Himself. But I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. 
I will sing to the Lord because he has. He has dealt bountifully with me. Life is so hard, folks, that we must be, we have to be constantly talking and preaching to ourselves. Life is so confusing that we must preach the clarity of God into the midst of our confusion. The number of times I in my life create my situations to be more confusing and make my life harder because I'm listening to myself rather than talking to myself are endless. It's all the time. Martin Lloyd-Jones says this, most of our problems in life, this is in Martin Lloyd-Jones' book, Spiritual Depression. He says, most of our problems in life come from the fact that we spend most of our time listening to ourselves rather than talking to ourselves. So what do we talk to ourselves about? Well, the psalmist gives us a great example. We talk to ourselves about the steadfast love of God and that he's trustworthy. I will trust in your steadfast love. I trust you because you're steadfast, because you never change, and because you love me. We sing a song. Your love is stronger. Your love is, your love is strong. And he says, two things I know that you've told me. Your love is strong. Two things you've told me, I may get this wrong, but you're strong and that you love me. It's one thing to love somebody weak, right? That's great, love them, but they're not helping you very much. It's another thing to trust somebody who's strong, but they aren't very loving. God's both. We trust him because he's strong and his love is strong. So we remind ourselves his love is strong. Our heart shall rejoice in his salvation. What are we reminding ourselves? He is a helper. He is the savior. Salvation is fundamentally a part of God's character and he's ready to save his arm will stretch as far as you feel like you are ready to save you. And then we sing. Why? Because he's dealt bountifully with us. We remember how much there is in our life to be thankful for. Even when we feel like God's turned away from us, we remind ourselves. We talk to ourselves. He's trustworthy. He's strong. He's loving. He saves. He helps. He's been good to me. We talk to ourselves. The Psalms are made and given to us not for rare occasion, not for just the times when the big trouble makes it appropriate, but we're in trouble all the time. The Psalms are given to us all the time because God will never leave us. He'll never forsake us. I'm going to pray here in a minute, but there's going to be some individuals up front to pray with you. God's here to help. The community, Redemption Gilbert, is here to pray and to be with you. We invite you to come up. If you are sick, we want to pray for your healing. If you're confused, we want to pray for clarity. If you're lonely, we want to pray for you and help you get connected. So come up and pray at the end. Let's pray now. Father, we love you and thank you for your grace and your mercy. Thank you that you are a God big enough, strong enough, and loving enough that you call us to protest you to plea to you to do something. God, you are a God that is so faithful and so true and have acted so sufficiently in our world that we can preach that truth to ourselves. In Christ's name we pray, amen.